Welcome back, everybody. It's me, Matt Tinney, and... Jan Earhart. And you're about to listen to a didactic from the CIT Echo. To learn more about CIT Echo, check it out at gocit.org. You can also send Jen an email at... J-E-A-R-H-E-A-R-T at cabq.gov. Hope to see you guys soon. Enjoy. Bye. Be nice to the presenters. <laughs> Only no <pressure>. on. <laughs> oh man, this, I've only been gone for like two years. Already back. But you know, we we first heard about the work they were doing because we got something about grand rounds, and we thought this was very interesting, especially for the, the things we see in law enforcement or just public safety in general. I should say, because a lot of times we are seeing people in their first break, and we are unfortunately who gets called because. 911 answers everything. So hopefully we can learn some stuff and pick their brains for, uh, for everything. But I will let you guys introduce yourselves and start whenever you guys are ready. All right. Well, so uh, Don and I are going to talk. There's a lot of different avenues that we could take with this presentation. So we wanted to just briefly review about psychosis. I think that there's been some talks that have happened on psychosis, but I know not everybody may have chimed in. And so we'll, we'll go through it a little bit and then talk a little bit about our clinic. We also really wanted to focus on a piece that I think doesn't often get um, highlighted in presentations, which is the family component. Um, when perhaps for you all as well, when you're walking into a first episode or a situation where there's behavioral health crisis going on, there's often other people around um, that are sort of either um, you know, ones who called or maybe aren't sure what's going on. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about um, some responses and um, some things that you might see uh, or what could be going on with a family or a partner or a caregiver who is working is um, taking care of somebody with the first episode. And so, and then we'll leave time for questions. So we, we have kind of a diverse agenda and I know we don't have a, a large amount of time. So we'll work through quickly some parts and if you want us to review some other things, just follow up some questions. So Don's gonna start us off. Everybody do the wave. <laughs> so a lot of this information I think you guys have probably received already, so I'm going to fly through some of the, um, some of the slides. Um, but just to kind of look at how common it is for someone to have what would be considered an episode of psychosis. Uh, three out of 100 people. Um, our clinic serves age group 15 through 30 with a little wiggle room on each side, and that catches a majority of people um, when they would have a first episode. Um, and then psychosis can be caused by multiple different either diagnoses, medical illness, um, substance-induced trauma, and lots of other, lots of other stuff. Um, so again, to just fly through this, because I know you guys had it, um, some symptoms that fall under the umbrella of psychosis, we all typically think right away hallucinations or seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling, tasting, or sensing stuff that other people do not. Um, delusions or fixed false beliefs, uh, paranoia. So, so believing stuff that there is evidence to the contrary. Um, as well as confused thinking, disorganization, not really making sense to someone else um, is, a, is another sign. So some things we wanted to look at with first episode would be what makes it look different than what you see more chronically where 
we would we would look towards someone and know that there was more chronic mental illness going on and things that have been untreated for a long time. First episode is really confusing a lot of times for people because there's a plausible deniability to a lot of what's going on. Um, so the age group that majority of at least males wind up experiencing this, females experience it a little bit later than, than males, would, would look sometimes similar to things that we see in adolescence. So isolation, um, feeling like people are out to get them or having a fallout with friends and other things like that, um, mood swings, lack of energy, lack of motivation. So retro, looking back at this stuff, I mean, a lot of times family members, loved ones, people will say, I knew that something was wrong and it felt different than just adolescence or young adulthood. But um, all of this can kind of fall in what's considered a prodromal state, which is that, that part that happens before the break. So prodrome is some of, some of these experiences that people have before having an actual psychotic break. Um, so decline in functioning, disorganized behaviors. I mean, you could see how a lot of the sadness, depression, um, they are things that sometimes people do experience uh, in, in early adulthood or teenage years. So the reason why we want to focus a bit on that is our clinic specifically does early thorough intervention um, and people do really well if this stuff can be caught early on. But again, with what, what you guys are seeing, you're probably getting that since 911 answers everything. You guys are responding to um, situations where we, we hear about afterwards that families didn't know what was going on, there's an agitated member of the family, there's some aggression or confusion or there's just a lot going on that, that people are not exactly sure what's happening. So as you can see on, on this, no symptoms that drop in functioning, um, is that's where prodrome is, sort of that withdrawal, that, and then starting some positive symptoms or symptoms that we can see. And then there's that full psychosis or first break. So we are looking at that and earlier as opposed to more chronic illness, um, which is after that. So the person experiencing symptoms, well, a lot of times they'll express a desire to be left alone. They're really confused. They have difficulties organizing their thoughts, um, very suspicious of other people really sensitive to sensory things, so sound, light, different things like that, that they're, they're sort of processing senses different than they were, feeling that something's not quite right or that their mind is playing tricks. So on our website, one of the things that we've worked with folks in our clinic, they said that some of them started Googling, like, am I going crazy? Am I losing my mind? There were different things that they were functioning pretty high. Lots of our folks are in grad school, working full time, are partnered, are you know, and and something happens. Um, for some people, it's it's a very quick, acute change, and for some people, it's happening over a longer period of time. But their their mentation and their ability to understand things or or function has changed. And so, what what other people usually see in the person um, is just a, a good amount of withdrawal. Um, that, that avoiding stimulation, whether that be social interaction, noise, different things like that, people will talk about um, being held up in the house or in their room or not being able to function with family members anymore, so they're not participating in what they used to, and then a decline in their performance, whether that be at work, relationships, job, um, defensiveness when asked to engage in stuff that require abstract thought. 
Um, so again, what, what we're trying to do is to look at some warning signs um, and, and try and engage with families or, or folks who are experiencing symptoms early on. Um, we can talk about this later a little bit, but this is just some of the focuses that we do in our program. We do some family education. We work with the individual in all areas. How does it Arrow? How does your math go? <laughs> <laughs> the same way. Family? So I, didn't want to, I just wanted to touch base. So the RAISE model is really our clinic. There was a, a nationwide uh, research study done out of the National Institutes of Mental Health and the National Institutes of Health looking at um, how best to provide services for somebody when they are in a first episode and would there, what would that look like? Would that look different than sort of treatment as usual where you sort of go in and see a psychiatrist and maybe get medication and sort of do that every three months and make sure everything kind of goes away. okay and then maybe do some therapy. Um, and then you know, really those two were I think part of the most common treatment as usual. Um, and the RAISE program, the reason I want to highlight the RAISE model is, is I, 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 don't, I feel like I remember when we were talking about planning this, there's other people chiming in from around the U.S. possibly. And this RAISE model um, is going to be found in other states as well. Uh, almost every state will have one first episode clinic just based on some state funds. And so you know, one of the resources we can provide after um, this presentation to sort of circulate is which ones are active um, because a lot of them provide um, not only services but can also provide local resources and additional training for other places that might be chiming in um, across the U.S. Um, the RAISE model is um, really, I, I think we will be talking about it more, but I just wanted to, to really stop and pause about it because it really is, um, I, I think, a really novel way of thinking about treatment because it it really emphasizes this team aspect of care um, where lots of people are involved in supporting the young person as they are going through uh, the episode and that involves the family and lots of psych lots and lots of psychoeducation about what's going on sort of reducing that fear and the stress of uncertainty um, and then obviously the, psych the psychiatric piece is a big piece of it and then the therapy is a very kind of specific type of therapy more along the lines of, of sort of skill building than it is sort of insight that's not really necessarily processing things. Um, and then the case management or here in New Mexico uh, comprehensive community support services really um, helping to then link to the next steps of recovery. The emphasis being returning to goals, returning to functioning, going back to school, getting a job. How do you make a resume? How do you find housing? How do you ride the bus? Like things that will help improve their quality of life which you know, the RAISE model really emphasizes this return to recovery. Um, and I think that that just message of recovery is one that we, I want to emphasize. I think our clinic really has a big emphasis on it because it changes your mindset <clears throat> going into a situation if you're sort of seeing this as recovery as opposed to seeing this as chronic symptoms and never going to get better. And, it, and I think it does sort of flip how you um, sort of react at times. So that's all I wanted to say on that. So we'll keep going. Does anybody have any questions so far? We blazed through some stuff. Okay. Should we stop there? The family piece is, um, I consider this one of the most unique parts in, of our program in, in the sense that sometimes this family work is the work that in our clinic we're doing 
before we even get somebody in the door for treatment. Um, obviously, I think in some cases that may be more relevant for you, you all, you're bringing somebody in maybe for an evaluation because of, of a call. Um, but we do get calls from family members or friends or somebody calling about themselves who's just not sure what's kind of going on and they're trying to feeling us out. Or we oftentimes will spend, there's one uh, person I think of, we spent a year talking with the mother about the services and um, and we just got her in. And, it, and, and if we hadn't sort of done all that legwork at the beginning, it, I think it could have been a little bit of a different, you know, um, prognosis and so this this work that we do sort of supporting people around um, the individual having a first episode is really important because they are the ones that are often there in the moment when something significant is happening are the ones calling for help are the ones sort of knowing what their relapse prevention plan is what are we going to do when we start to see this again should the first step be calling the police or is there a better step that maybe we could do to sort of de-escalate things before calling the police so a good thing to know about this this part of things as well is that we've got many situations where we'll work with the family and we haven't actually seen the person who's experiencing symptoms and they did at times need to call or have called 911 and there had been legal involvement so there's a couple of situations where we work with numerous people with just working with families around psychoeducation, around how to engage with somebody who's experiencing symptoms, who may not be an imminent risk, but where things are really difficult at home and things are very different. Um, so a lot of times I think being able to even refer families for that support and psychoeducation would decrease the family's sort of urgency or need to call 911 when they're a little more equipped and they don't feel as desperate they've got some support they've got um, folks who are working with them so mm -hmm. so and that looks a lot different than a lot of other models with regard to we're working with a family we've not even seen the person who's mm -hmm. having symptoms but we're supporting the family and understanding maybe what's going on and maybe some more de-escalation techniques and other things that they could be utilizing with the person that they care about so employment education, we do support with that too. So, so this is sort of the individual resiliency training and therapy. Like Lindsay said, we are not, we're not doing sort of processing union therapy or anything. But like, you know, how are, do we get some relief for this person, increase their functioning where they're, they're um, doing things that contributing to society or their household, repairing their relationships being able to manage their lives. And a lot of relapse prevention, really working through what are the early warning signs, sort of understanding that a lot of our folks will have a first episode and they won't have another one. But for a lot of folks will have one and they may have another one. And so, you know, it's giving them support about, you know, that possibility and planning, saying, okay, when this happened before, what do you, what does a family member, what do your friends remember about the first thing that started to change? Okay, was he started to not shower? Okay. So it'd be better to intervene there than to intervene, you know, when they aren't making sense and confused and are maybe seeing things. And so really planning out that relapse prevention plan and revisiting it um, is a really big part of the, um, the th therapy component of I, uh, the IRT and the RAISE model. So th this, we've got some screenshots from our website because we weren't sure about being able to pull that up. So, so that's earlyprogram.org and that's where this information comes from. Um, but give 
give this a look. It's got a lot of different resources in the community and links to some national resources. Um, I know this is kind of small, so I'm just going <clears> to <throat> go through a little bit of the family and friends page. Um, so basically, the thing that we hear from folks and from loved ones is that the person who's experiencing symptoms may not be making sense all of a sudden. And so that's obviously confusing, frustrating, aggravating, anger producing, and that is sort of lends itself to situations that I'm sure you guys are getting calls on. Um, so we work with the family around what, how do you interject when somebody's having a delusional belief and is really agitated by something that you know obviously is not true. And um, so, so we've, we've got some tips on our website and other things too about, you know, joining with the person on their feelings. Like you sound really scared. Like it, it joining with how someone feels can usually deescalate a situation a little bit at least instead of just going up against that's not true. That didn't happen. People obviously, this is what they're experiencing is real to them. And so to just go up against it can sometimes escalate situations. So we try and work with families around that. Um, giving someone a longer time to respond and process what they're asking of them or what they're saying. Um, this is a lot of times really frustrating for family members with their engaging with someone and that person is taking a really long time to process or trying to make sense what they're saying or feeding back stuff that doesn't make sense. And, you know, we've had families say they just suspected that their son or daughter was on drugs at the time and they were then furious and, you know, it just sort of can become really escalated. Um, so giving someone some time um, and we work with people around sort of picking your battles and stuff too and, and what's really important and how to engage on, on um, what's needed in the household and letting some other things go. And working with families around safety planning and not allowing violence in the home, what to do. We walk people through the steps of the different services that are available from outpatient to emergent response, psych emergency services, different things like that. Things that are open 24 hours a day and supports that they might be able to utilize um, in, instead of reaching right for 911, if there's some other things that, that could support them and help them de-escalate the situation and get some support. Um, I think that, that reducing stress, I mean, I just want to, uh, I think that that wasn't one worth sort of talking about again, because the, you know, I think that I work on the, like, most of the under 18 side, and so <clears throat> a lot of our crisis is with psychosis and other things is mom or dad or so-and-so told me to clean my room, I didn't want to, and so I just, Either I walked out or I got really angry, I started punching the walls. And so I think in this instance of psychosis, if there's things like, did they really need to have everyone clean right now? If we work like around that sort of perspective, like keeping the stress down to the point that um, they, their brain can sort of take some time to recover from the psychosis, they can get connected, they can get the medication, they can get the therapy, or the stress level goes down, it just can be really um, helpful in then taking a step back and you're not ignoring the fact that you've got to have responsibilities and whatnot but you're at least sort of timing when you're doing that and i think that sort of for you all i'm trying to i'm trying to sort of relate that to you're walking into a stressful situation that's already stressed and so like any steps that can be done to sort of 
remove any stressors like a parent who may be nagging somebody while you're there saying like he wouldn't do this and he wouldn't do that sort of those sorts of things I think can maybe help diffuse things at least in the mind of like the young person that's going through a sort of a lot of different things in their head at that moment I don't know if that you know, something it resonates but and, and I don't know exactly what you guys walk into but I just in my head I'm imagining it um so it's good to yeah. So in working working with families around crisis planning and other things. So again, I mean, I think the person that's experiencing symptoms because it is a family situation or you're walking into a situation where um, there's already you know tension and people are upset not knowing what's going on or there's been some sort of aggression or um, I have found in, in working with the families that that makes things, oh, equipping them makes things a lot more um, workable for the person who's experiencing symptoms and may not know what's going on in order to link them to be willing to get some supports. So if a family feels more equipped, there's less of a sense of desperate desperation or urgency with regard to this, I have to get somebody involved now because this is out of control. Um, so it's a really different way, I think, of providing providing care, um, especially and, for the age group. Yeah, I mean that's the interesting thing. I think really this this fifteen to thirty age group is like this transition age, and and so we work with a lot of folks who maybe are they're still living at home or they they're kind of they're supposed to be doing all these independent things, but that's sort of not quite happening for probably for a variety of reasons. But like the family is still very much. Um, either it's a mother or father or grandparent or even a significant other are still really part of that whole um, care of that person. They're not really quite separated. And so like the family stuff is just, yeah. <clears throat> we think about it so much for like these younger kids, but you now the 20s, which is where I think we probably get most of our kiddos are probably like 20 to 25. Um, the family piece has just been crucial. And and really, I mean, I think a lot of the folks that we see in first episode were living on their own. They were going to school or working full time, maintaining a household of some sort. And after or during the first episode can no longer do that at that point. And so they return home. And so then you've got that just developmental thing that even with no stressors and mental health issues, like I'm an adult and I'm living with my parents again and everything that that entails and all the stressors that that entails, even when someone is healthy and has to do that, let alone be experiencing these symptoms and, and what happens with that, so. This is our team. Um, we have two psychiatrists that work most closely with us. One, the CEO is one that, um, so a big part of our model is, is we round <coughs> on all the high-risk ones, as many of the ones as we can every week. And so Juan, uh, Dr. Bastillo, um, Don, our CSW that has a, a portion of her caseload just for us. Um, and we have a peer support worker um, and some program coordinators. We, we meet every week and we, we, we go through everybody and sort of see where they're at, what they need. Not everybody in our clinic has all the services. Some have psychiatrists. Most of our folks see the psychiatrist, even if they aren't maybe on medications at that time. Some will see Don, some will see myself on the child side. 
some will have the case management, some will kind of bounce back around services. It's not a prescribed model of you need to do everything in order to benefit. It's really sort of what's going to be most useful at that point. Um, and so being able to, to talk about these folks, uh, we have um, sort of these smaller caseload of just for these clinic to, to really keep our eye on folks has been very, very beneficial. We have, so UNM has forensic um, CSW as well, and occasionally we've gotten a couple referrals from them, and I don't know if that's, uh, if that's uh, just worth mentioning, because we do, while we have folks assigned to us, we very much work with other folks in the UNM system, and so we don't necessarily take over uh, patients when they already establish with someone, but we occasionally will get somebody who's been assigned somehow through the forensic system too, that the CSW's there, and then we'll, um, We'll, we'll help them sort of figure out if the, some specific first episode work is needed, um, or Dr. Lucio or Dr. Tone will, will consult in, the, in one of the, the start clinic, the UNM clinic, with the, the fellow or the attending who's um, working with the kiddos. Yes. Could you define CSW? Yes, community support worker. <laughs> so that's like UNM New Mexico's version of case management. I don't know if other states still call it case management, but the goal being. There is a little bit of a shift in um, the in uh, the sort of philosophy with community support, case management, the sort of older model. You sort of you basically do a lot of things for people. Um, the community support model is very much supporting somebody as they do it themselves. And so this is what you need to do. And so I'll help you navigate that. And so and that actually works really well um, for our model as well. The way sort of this recovery. Um, because the more practice you have and support while doing it, sort of that scaffolding, then the easier it is to do it when all the services are pulled away. Yeah, so our, I mean, our goal is to not be needed anymore and to, to sort of transition this stuff into more natural supports for the family and for the person experiencing symptoms. So, so probably important to note then too, peer support worker is someone oh, with yeah. lived experience um, who's received services and um, is working recovery. And so that person working alongside um, our folks is, is sort of able to relate in a way with their life experience um, and show that recovery is possible. So, I mean, I, I think that's one of the most important things on our team is to show, mm -hmm. um, you know, that recovery is possible. Um, and then we'll be doing that, which the goal with the peer support, I think, for any of the folks that are on the line from more rural parts of New Mexico is to spread that peer support model to outside of Albuquerque and Santa Fe, Las Cruces, to places where maybe there may be less sort of behavioral health providers, but peer support may be sort of the first window that somebody would have the first episode. And then building on that also, the telehealth is something that um, is uh, on the docket for this next year to sort of figure out how to provide consultation or some sort of psychiatric service through our clinic for first episode across the state. Because we're, we're trying to really, I mean, the ideal thing would be to link to natural supports and have this clinic train other areas and whatnot in this model so that, you know, when, when someone hasn't had a long history of mental health care or anything going on psychiatrically, when something starts to happen, they go to a natural support. So like if they practice a religion, it's usually someone within, within the religion or, the high school coach or you know a friend of the family and the PCP is going to see a lot of 
of first episode stuff. So we, we try and do a bunch of training with regard to where are folks going to go to seek support, to, to ask those questions like we don't know what's happening, um, and, and get a lot of referrals from, from there, be able to do some training and link with people so that they're a little more equipped in the specific um, areas that might be helpful within first episode. So if, if somebody in the field wanted to see if somebody they had had an interaction with might be appropriate for your clinic, would they call these numbers on the screen? Mm -hmm. Yes, they call those numbers and then they would sort of figure out what to do from there. So, so that 800 number links to a machine and that comes directly to us. Um, my number is on the bottom and that's my direct line and my email. Mm -hmm. And those that are not connected to, to see this, the general number is 1-888. Six six three two seven five nine. Don't make it yours. And the web page is www.earlyprogram.org, which has our number on it too. So that, I think that's all the main stuff we had. So that probably takes us. How we did that? Those are great. Yeah. Any any questions from the the network? And don't forget, guys, the star six to mute none. Yeah.